0: Well, our text this evening is from Exodus 20 and verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And this is the last of these Ten Commandments, and our catechism quite helpfully shows to us what is required and what is forbidden. It requires full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbour and all that is his. And it forbids all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbour and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Now, you're probably familiar with the category of the seven deadly sins. I don't know who first really came up with that categorization of of the particular sins as being particularly deadly ones. Uh, I think certainly it does show to us serious sins that the Bible speaks of, but nowhere in the Bible is there a, a specific list of seven of these sins. But it's interesting that these Seven deadly sins are known as a category in society. I think it was several years ago uh, maybe, uh, that uh, Magnum ice cream had a range of ice creams of the seven deadly sins. They were all Each ice cream was named after one of these sins. So this is a concept that is known in society. And one of those sins is envy. And so it's labelled as a deadly sin. Of course, that is consistent with what the Bible says. Colossians 3 verse 5 tells us that covetousness is idolatry. To covet something is the same as to be an idolater. So we know from the Bible's teaching that covetousness is something very serious. And yet, don't you think it's the case that not many people take covetousness as being a very serious sin? Although it's labelled as one of these seven deadly sins, how many people in the world are really concerned with envy? I think it's perhaps the case that because it can be so internalised, that uh, people don't necessarily think of it. You know, to do something like to murder, to commit adultery, these things are outward actions that are seen by others and uh, Envy, although it can be seen, although you can say, I think that person is jealous, nevertheless, I think the bulk of it is, is internalized. It can be kept, in a sense, hidden away. It's not always seen and evident. And is it not the case, friends, that when sin is on the inside, we don't take it as seriously as sin on the outside? Because sin on the outside is seen and noticed. Envy, although it is often on the inside, in the heart, yet it is a particularly deadly sin. The Bible speaks of that. It shows us it is serious and it is to be treated with due care. Envy can be about anything. Anything that a person can have or possess can be envied. You can envy someone because of the possessions they have, because of the house the car they have, the the wealth they have. You can envy someone because of their position, the job they have, the status they have, the reputation, the prestige. You can envy a recognition that someone has, or some success that they have. You can envy someone for the family they have, the particular wife or, or children they have. You can envy someone for their gifts, for their appearance and looks and so on, or Anything that your neighbor can have is something that can be envied or coveted. Of course, we know that in society, uh, covetousness can be a big thing, particularly in a consumer-driven society. Think about the, the world of advertising. One of the goals of advertising is to get you to see that your life is inadequate without a particular product. Some advertising can be very good. It shows you the benefits of the product and you can weigh it up and say, well, if these are the benefits of the product, I I know I should buy it. But other forms of advertising can breed discontentment. The message can be very much that your life is incomplete, that your life uh, is not in a good position. There are all these people here who have something that you are missing You need to buy it. But even, friends, if we were able to abstract ourselves from a consumer society and from all this advertising, there would still be envy in the human heart. Because the fallen human heart must always have such covetousness within it. Idolatry is what our heart specializes in. As Calvin talks about the heart being an idol factory. So it is that we produce idols there. Now there are ways in which we can legitimately aspire uh, to have other things. We can aspire to have a better position in life. A a, a job that pays a bigger salary. We can aspire to have a bigger house or a different car. Uh, And there's a sense in which we can do that without... Coveting. There, there must be some line where we can have desires for things that are good and moderate, but then if we cross over, if it goes too far, we have entered into this zone of covetousness. If we're desiring something, and the way we seek to get that thing is, a, is through a legitimate method, then there is nothing wrong with that. For example, if you lived in a, a small house, And you went and visited a friend and they lived in a bigger house and you were looking around the house and you thought, I really could do with some more space in my house. I would like to have a house this size. That's not necessarily being covetous of your friend's house. You know that in order to get a house like that, you have to work hard and save more money perhaps to, 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 to buy a house like that. You're not envying them, you're not cross with them, you're not resenting them for the house that they have. You simply recognize, this would suit me better uh, to have a house like this. Or if someone has a particular degree or an award or a particular uh, job or, or some sort of merit, you could say, I'd quite like to get that degree or that promotion And so you set yourself to work hard for it. That's not necessarily wrong. You're seeking something legitimately. Hard work and industry is, of course, an important part of the Christian worldview. But we must recognize that everything is subordinate to the glory of God. Why do you want that house or why do you want that degree or that promotion is it for God's glory, first of all, rather than for your own? So we can't simply label all desires as necessarily being jealousy or envy or covetousness. But yet we know that anything can be coveted and that we can, in our hearts, desire something in an immoderate way. We read from Hebrews chapter 13, and there in verse 5 it says. Let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. I think this gives up to us two sides. Covetousness is the bad, contentment is the good. Let your conduct be without covetousness, but instead replace it with something different. Be content with such things as you have they want us to consider first covetousness and then contentment first of all covetousness let your conduct be without covetousness how does this covetousness differ from the aspiration that we spoke of before you can aspire to for all sorts of things you want to uh, you, maybe you were born into a poor family. You want to, uh, to you aspire to leave your children uh, in a better position, uh, a better starting point than what you have. How, how is that different from covetousness? Well, there are many different ways in which we can answer it. One way I've already uh, mentioned was the glory of God, how much that plays into it. But another rule of thumb that we could ask ourselves is, um, Romans 12 and verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When you look at someone who has something that you don't have, they have a, a better job, a bigger house, a nicer car, a, a more attractive family, or whatever. When you look at them, are you to to rejoice with those who rejoice? Or is there resentment in your heart? Do you hold a grudge against that person because they have something that you want? Do you think in your heart it's not fair? Look at how hard I have worked and look at what I have. Look at how hard he's worked. He has far more than me. He's hardly worked as much as I've worked and yet he has more money, a better (coughs) place. And so on. Can you rejoice with those who have more and better than you have? Or do you rather rejoice when they weep? Do you look at them and see that uh, when a misfortune comes to them and you're secretly glad that that they don't have everything uh, because you know that you deserve more? There's, of course, a sense of pride there, an assessment of what you deserve versus what that person deserves. You think I should be, I'm up here and I deserve to have more. That person is down here and yet it's unfair that they have as much as they do. So that's one perhaps rule of thumb that we can consider as we look around us. To to envy someone is in a sense not being able to rejoice with what they have. And such a response, of course, is, is excessive and immoderate. It's not a, not a, a right uh, and a good response at all. It often grows, doesn't it? It grows and it spreads and it can take over if it's left unchecked. Uh, and we'll, we'll meet examples of that in due course. In the political world, there can be a politics of envy as well. Uh, trying to set up of two groups against one another. Uh, take, for example, you could say a working class, those who are poorer, trying to set them against people who are richer. Uh, and look at this. Look at how, how much wealth these people have. Look at how they are millionaires and billionaires. And it's not fair. We're all humans. There should be a, an equality, a distribution, of this wealth on a more fair basis and what is that but a politics of envy it's saying to one group of people that you deserve more and they deserve less and that you shouldn't be content until you have what they have from them to their hurt it's a bearing of a grudge it's a holding a resentment in your heart against someone or who has more you may not hold a resentment Against a particular person, but you may hold it against a class of people. You see you're, you're abstracting it, you're thinking of them as not as, as individual faces, but as a, as a group of people, it is still a politics of envy. And very much at the moment, I've spoken of it before, there is a philosophy, if we could call it that of intersectionality. And very simply, it's a setting two opposing groups against each other. There are the oppressors and there's the oppressed. And you'll recognize this because it's, it's, it's on TV. It's, you hear it all the time. Companies, businesses are, are, are using this in their advertising. They're running everything through this lens of intersectionality. Because there are the oppressors, the white men particularly, uh, and even more, if, if they are uh, straight, if they, they're heterosexual, these are the oppressors. They're white supremacists, for example. But then there's the oppressed. Uh, women, the, the other genders that, that have been created, invented, uh, those who are racial minorities, these are the oppressed. And intersectionality is is essentially a way of of counting up how many different ways you can fit in to the oppressed category as opposed to being in the oppressor category. And there's an envy produced in it. Because these people are not to look at themselves and think, well, what what are my responsibilities in life? What am I to do with, with what opportunities I have? Rather, the whole time they're, they're being told, it's unfair that these white men have power and money and so on, and you should not be content until you have it. And that's why at the moment we have all sorts of ways in which white men feel the need to apologize for things. And, and everyone tries to... Uh, in their advertising, these companies try to show how tolerant they are, to put forward how, how many different badges they can wear, how, how they can appease these people who are the so called oppressed. Because in that idea of intersectionality, the oppressed, of course, are good and the oppressors are bad. But it is envy, isn't it? It's simply a case of saying, Uh, You want something at someone else's expense. And you have a resentment, a grudge against this category of people who have the things that you want. Where is the rejoicing with those who rejoice in that sort of an attitude? Envy is fundamentally a selfishness. If I can't have it, I don't want someone else to have it. That's what what we see at the heart of it. If I can't have it, if I don't have it, I don't want someone else to have it. I can't bear for someone else to have the thing that I want to have. And yet, Paul tells us here in verse five: Let your conduct be without covetousness. We need to check, to check our emotions, to check our heart, to check the hidden, secret attitudes of our hearts. How are we doing? Is there covetousness in the way we deal with other people? But then there's a second part, of course, is contentment. The two must go together. Because it's the same with all sin. You can't put one sin to death without replacing it with something wholesome, some virtue, something good. You don't take off clothes without putting on New clothes, We're to take off the old, dirty and soiled clothes that are stained with sin. And we're to put on instead what is holy and white and pure. And in this, it's put off covetousness. Every day, check your heart for these sins. Put them away. And instead, gain contentment. Learn contentment. And isn't Paul right in Philippians 4, where he says that he... Learned to be content. He had to learn it. It wasn't easy. It was a lesson. Line upon line, precept upon precept. He learned it little by little in his life how to be content. Because, of course, he wasn't naturally content. Naturally, he was a covetous man. It was that tenth commandment that was used, wasn't it, in his conversion in many ways to teach him the sinfulness of sin. But Paul learned to be content. He learned how to replace covetousness with true contentment. And he says there in Philippians 4 that he was able to be content whether he was abased or whether he was abiding. Whether he was in the depths of poverty or the heights of riches. Whether he was in a prison cell chained up beside Roman guards. Or whether he was a free man with his liberty when everything was going badly and when everything was going well, he was content because he recognized that all that he had came from God. You see, contentment is an inner state. It's in the heart where we're settled, we're resigned to the will of God. We're at peace with what he has given us in his providence. And indeed, further than that, it's, it's not enough just to simply say we're, we're at peace and we're resigned, we go further, we're thankful. We're thankful for what he has given to us. Even if it's hard, we give thanks, counting even trials as a joy to us because they produce in us what is good. And when we think of it in that sense, of course it's quite clear to us that contentment is not something that comes naturally to the human heart. The unregenerate man or woman cannot produce contentment truly. No matter how peaceful they look, no matter how accepting they look, no matter how much they express their thankfulness, we know that it doesn't come from an unregenerate heart, but from a redeemed heart. True contentment can only be with the Lord's people. We're told here to be content with such things as you have. What do you presently have? What is your present lot in life? That is what God has chosen for you in this moment. And you're to be content with it. As I said earlier, it doesn't mean we can't aspire through legitimate means to get other things to to grow and advance and so on. But nevertheless, we are to be content. If God decides we can't have that, we can't have health, we can't have a better job. We can't have a family. We can't have whatever. We ought to seek contentment. Be resigned to God's will. Your will be done. His will before our will. Let me give you two examples from the Old Testament of men who did not have contentment. The first is Ahab, the king, the worst of the kings of Israel. Remember how he looked out and saw Naboth's vineyard? It was the perfect piece of land for him. Uh, He he desperately wanted that vineyard. And he tried to get it. He asked for it. You, You think that Naboth would have given this land to the king? If the king asked for anything, surely it ought to be given. But Naboth knew that he couldn't give up his heritage, the family land. So what does Ahab do? Well, we see his discontentment. He goes and he lies down on his bed. He is sullen. He turns his face away. He he, he turns around. He's looking at a wall. He's refusing food. He won't eat or drink. He is so downcast, so annoyed and displeased with what Naboth has done there. That's envy and that's discontentment. He wants it so badly that he can't even function as the king any longer. Or think of another example of Haman in the book of Esther. Remember that this man was in many ways the second most important person in the whole empire. And uh, in chapter 5 he had been invited by Queen Esther to come to a banquet That was a very great and lavish privilege for Haman. And the only other guest at the banquet was the king himself. So here was a man who rubbed shoulders with the king. It's not just that he was the king's servant, which he was, but he was able to sit at a banquet with the king and the queen and to have conversation with What a privileged man in this empire. No one else enjoyed what he had. And yet he says in chapter 5, Yet all this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. One little thing in the kingdom that displeased him spoiled everything. Isn't that discontentment, isn't it? One little thing can spoil everything. You can have so much in life, more than most people In the whole world even. And yet, if there's one little thing that you're discontent with, it can ruin everything and make you sullen and displeased. Discontentment often comes out, though, doesn't it? Although it is something in the heart, it does erupt out. We find it hard to keep sin within. And two ways in which it comes out is through murmuring and fretting. To murmur, to complain. How good we can be at that. To complain even about very petty things, small things. To grumble that things are not the way they ought to be. It's unfair. Uh, we should have something more or something different than what we have. The other one, fretting, worrying. It, it, it's, we can worry about all sorts of things. Anxious thoughts about the future. Anxious thoughts about... Uh, very small, minor things that have little consequence. And we know that even though uh, in a few hours' time uh, those events will be passed and forgotten about, yet even still we can spend so much time worrying about all these things. Israel in the wilderness, of course, expressed discontentment in these two ways, murmuring and fretting. How often they complained against Moses In the wilderness? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to bring us here to die? Why have you not provided water for us? Where's our food going to come from? You see, they complained against the Lord's chosen servant. They complained against the Lord's providence. They also fretted and worried. They were anxious about all these things, not realizing. The Lord had the very hairs on their head numbered. How easy it is for us as Christians just to be like Israel in the wilderness. Their murmuring is described as rebellion. And so we ought to see our complaining and our anxieties as being a form of rebellion against the Lord. We may not have murdered someone or stolen things or committed adultery. And yet it is commonplace for us to complain and to fret about things in this world. At the root, it's a lack of contentment. But it goes deeper, doesn't it? As we diagnose this sin and as we seek to see deeper causes to it, isn't it a case that discontentment and envy come because we don't trust God's providence as we ought to? There's one thing to know that God is sovereign. To accept that. To believe it as a point of doctrine. To believe it in your head. There's another thing to trust that. To believe that he is not simply generally the Lord who provides. But that he is the Lord who provides for us, his people. For me, for you. He will provide for our needs. He can supply all our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. When we find ourselves discontent, we see a lack of trust in God's providence. But also there's some other causes. Perhaps it's a lack of humility. A discontentment is because we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. I, I said that earlier. We, we, we want a particular position in life, a particular career. And we think we deserve it. And so we're not happy until we get it. Pride. But then also we can think of worldliness as being uh, below the surface too. Discontentment surely has a great deal of worldliness in it. We're so focused at the things of this world that we're not setting our hearts on the things which are above where Christ is. See, envy and discontentment it concerns the things of this world. How often do you meet someone who is envious of someone who has a closer walk with Christ? How often do you meet someone who is envious of, of someone's relationship with the Lord? You, you don't see that, do you? you? You don't really see people envying those things. They, they, they're... Prizing things of the world instead of the things of heaven. Physical over the spiritual. And yet we're told that godliness with contentment, there is great gain. When we find discontentment, surely there's a degree of worldliness in our hearts. And I wonder perhaps whether as a society we simply have too much I've spoken before, it's not wrong to be rich, it's not wrong to have wealth. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and we uh, accept that. But I wonder, uh, for those of you who have lived a good number of years, are we really better off as society has grown richer? Is it the case that people have so much stuff that they're becoming even more discontented, that they don't have more? Is there this desire and yearning and seeking after more and more and more to fill our houses, to have bigger and better? And yet in simpler times, perhaps people were happier, generally speaking. Now, even if that is true, as I said earlier, it still wouldn't solve the problem by just... Uh, removing ourselves from this consumer world we live in and going to simpler times. Even in simpler times, envy was still in the human heart. That's granted. But nevertheless, doesn't it show to us how much temptation there is today in this world with how many things there are cluttering up our lives, how much we can see into other people's lives and, and what they have and what we don't have. And it is a great temptation that we must seek to do something about. Friends, how can we avoid covetousness? Well, as I said, in verse 5 it says, with contentment. This is one of the remedies. Put off covetousness, put on contentment. And therefore we must seek to be both thankful and trusting. I think that is at the heart of contentment. Those two things. Thankfulness. And trust. Of course, in envy, we don't have those two things. It's hard to be both thankful and trusting, as at the same time you're envying someone else. Those things are opposed to one another. And so the cure for covetousness is thankfulness. Thankfulness and trust. I spoke earlier about the murmuring and the fretting, these eruptions from a heart that is discontented. Well, how do we avoid anxiety? The Bible tells us. It's with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. And we can summarise it. Prayer and supplication is trusting, isn't it, in the Lord? You go to him with your petitions to ask him and you wait on him to give. That's faith, that's trusting. But it's not just trust, it's also thankfulness. To actually think, not about what you're lacking, to think about what you currently have and to be thankful for that. That's the, the remedy for anxiety. Well, surely it's the same for complaining. If you find yourself to be a person that murmurs, grumbles, complains, what's the remedy? Trust and thankfulness. You're complaining about your present lot in life. Well, You should be believing in the Lord in his promises. And you should be thankful brother, for the things that you have. The sullenness of Ahab, the discontentment of Haman, these things ought to have been solved by trust and thankfulness. We can't just stop these sins without replacing them with something else. But then I want to just draw your attention finally to verse 5 yet again and the, the rest of the verse it continues doesn't it let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have for he himself has said I will never leave you nor forsake you and and the words used there are very strong Um, I will certainly not leave you and certainly not uh, forsake you. The, the, the two knots there are, are intense. It's definitely not. Can, can you think? Is it possible in any stretch of the imagination that the Lord Jesus Christ would ever leave or forsake one of His people? The Apostle here is saying it's unimaginable because the promise is, "I will never, ever leave, and I will never, ever." It's stronger than we have it here in our English finals. And friends, isn't that something we ought to think about? If we're to avoid covetousness in our conduct, and we're to breed contentment in our hearts, surely by thinking on this promise, we can achieve that. I will never, ever leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. No matter what your lot in life is, As a Christian, surely that promise stands. Whether you're abased or you're abiding. Whether life is crumbling apart or going well. Whether disease has come into your life or whether you're healthy. Whether there are doubts plaguing you or whether your mind is stable. Whether you have all things or you're lacking everything. No matter how bad life gets... The Lord Jesus will never, ever leave his people. Nor will he ever contemplate forsaking them. He is steadfast with us. And surely in that we can be content. With the little we have. But with the difficulties we have. Is it not better? Isn't his grace better than life itself? To have one who sticks closer than a brother... Surely, friends, we would rather lose all things as as long as we can keep that. If we can keep that one thing, that one promise, what a delight it would be to suffer any loss knowing that he will sustain us through it. You see, covetousness looks at the world around us and says you can't do without these things. The promise ends to you something different. It says, look to Christ. You can do without these things, but you can never, ever do without the Lord Jesus Christ. May we take that promise to heart. Amen. Let's stand to pray. O our Lord and our God, we confess that in the world and in our hearts there is much greed and envy. And at times we can be discontent with your providence. O Lord, we can complain and grumble. We can be anxious for so many things. And we can be often ungrateful. O Lord, our hearts are not pure before you. And yet what promises you give in the scriptures. We thank you for this one in particular that we've thought of for a few moments this evening. Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. Help us to take it to heart. Help us to believe it even when we feel that our lot in life is is not what it ought to be. O Lord, no matter what you take us through, help us to remember these things. And may you uh, be pleased to sanctify us by your truth. May you be pleased, O Lord, to send your spirit into our lives to use your word day by day, as we've thought about these commandments over the past several weeks. O Lord, incline our hearts to your commandments. Help us, O Lord, to love your law, to find it to be our delight to obey you, and to know that with obedience you are well pleased. We confess that we cannot in this world keep your commandments perfectly, how we have need of Christ and his perfect righteousness, the one who obeyed them fully. But yet, nevertheless, help us, O Lord, to be willing and enable us by your power and by your spirit to keep these commandments, that you might be glorified in this world. Hear us and answer us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. We'll conclude with singing from Psalm 37. Psalm 37, in the first seven verses, and how much of the practical wisdom of this psalm speaks to this commandment we've considered. For evildoers fret thou not thyself unquietly, nor do thou envy bear to those that work iniquity. For even like unto the grass, soon be cut down shall they, and like the green and tender herb, they wither shall away. Set thou thy trust upon the Lord, and be thou doing good. And so thou in the land shalt dwell, and verily have food. Delight thyself in God, he'll give thine heart's desire to thee. Thy way to God commit, him trust, it bring to pass, shall he. And like unto the light, he shall thy righteousness display he thy judgment shall bring forth like noontime of the day. Rest in the Lord and patiently wait for him. Do not fret for him who prospering in his way success in sin doth get. Psalm 37. These verses, let's stand to sing. (coughs)